Our study in the book of Revelation brings us to chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. We are rounding third base in our study of the book of Revelation. We're getting ready to come home. We got three chapters left, 19, 20, and 21. There's a lot that we've yet to cover, and we're going to take our time making it through these. Now, we want to get something taken care of. The title of our message today is The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Pretty simple. But I want to get something taken care of right away. Uh, who is the bride? We want to take a look at that. We want to get that up front before we even read our text. Who is the bridegroom? That's a lot easier than who the bride is. And what does, when does the marriage feast take place? When exactly does it happen? If it happens during the tribulation period, what about the people that are part of the body of Christ that are still down on earth? Uh, tribulation saints, the Jews that are down on the earth who have now, are now messianic, who are now Christian, because they are. And, um, and where does it take place? And we're going to answer all of these questions today, and then we're going to learn some very specific things about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want to start off by saying this. One day, we will have this event. There will be the marriage supper of the Lamb and the wife is there and we will be kind of pinching ourselves as to this is, this is the culminating event where we gather together in heaven with the bridegroom and it's a powerful thing for this feast. Now, first of all, who is the bride? The bride of Christ is generally considered in the church, in Christian theology to be, uh, is, 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 generally considered to be the church in Christian theology. Now, there's a reason for that. N never in the New Testament does the Bible ever say that the church is the bride. We're going to look at passages that people get it from, but it never says that. So why is it that we, uh, right off the top of our head, go, well, the bride is the church? And we're going to look at that. Uh, and also, among some Messianic Jews... These are Jews who have made commitments to Christ and are living for him now. The bride, they consider themselves to be the bride of Christ. The fulfillment of Old Testament passages that say that, that Israel is the bride. And there are those who believe that Israel, the nation of Israel itself, is the bride as well. That is, those who are genuine believers within the nation of Israel. We will see that the Bible teaches, and I'm going to let it right out of the bag now, where we'll see the Bible teaches the bride is every genuine believer. It's not just the church and it's not just Israel and it's not just Messianic Jews. It is everyone. It's everyone that genuinely has a relationship with Christ so that everyone will be there and we all make up the bride. And I want to look at a few passages on that. Now, the Bible definitely says that Israel, the Old Testament, that Israel is God's wife. I'm going to read you a few examples of that. There are a lot more of them, all right? But I just want to read you a few of them. Hosea 2.16, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer my master. Isaiah 54.5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. So it's very clear who it is. He's the, he's the God of the whole earth, and He is their husband. Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And the as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. So here we have 
an analogy of God rejoicing over Israel like the bride. Now, a lot of these passages that we're looking at have to do with them being unfaithful. It will talk about them being unfaithful, but that God's going to bring them in as a bride, even though they've been betrothed and have been unfaithful, that God's going to bring them in. Let me give you one more. This is Jeremiah 2, 2. Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, and some versions say bride there instead of betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in the land, not uh, the land, not sown. So he, they followed him in the wilderness and there was that joy in the beginning. And they walked in the love of being betrothed to God, which would mean being a bride. It's a kind of engagement. Uh, we also see all believers in, invited to, the, to a feast at the end of the age on a mountain of the Lord. Now, this is a connected passage to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you're cross-referencing the Bible, you're going to come back to Isaiah 25. But I want to show you, first of all, early on in Isaiah, that it talks about a mountain of God. Now, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. The new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven and be set on mountains. And we are going to dwell there with God in the new Jerusalem. So this also makes a reference to the new Jerusalem at the end of the age. Now I'm going to read you Isaiah 2, 2 verse. It's one verse. This is to establish that there's a future coming where God is living on, a mount, on mountains. He's ruling from mountains. So it says in Isaiah 2, 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. People from everywhere will come to this house of God, which is a reference to the new Jerusalem. Now I want to read you this passage out of Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. And we're talking about the wedding feast of the Lamb revealed in the Old Testament. It says, and in, and in this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces. So in that mountain that God dwells where his house is, he is going to make a feast for all peoples, a feast of wines on, on, and the lees. Now, the lees is the dregs of the wine, which was considered to them to be a delicacy. So I don't know that people go out and buy the dregs of wine today, but for them, it was a delicacy of fat things of marrow, which I don't necessarily want to eat either, uh, of well-refined wines and lees, and he will destroy, uh, destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over the people. So there's a, there's a covering that's been cast over the people. He's going to destroy it on that mountain. And the veil that is spread over all the nations, he will swallow up death forever. This feast in Isaiah 25, has got to be at the end of the age. Because when does death get swallowed up forever? It doesn't get swallowed up forever in the beginning of the tribulation when the, when the resurrection and the rapture take place. It's at the end of it. Little emphasis on the rapture, the rapture. Ba-boom, yeah. Could be at any moment. The, for those of you online, you didn't hear it. There was a pretty good thunderclap there. Um, so this is at the end of the age. This is when God puts an end to death. And, and it said, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? 
that the Lord will, will destroy death forever. And there are still people dying during the tribulation period, but that will be done when they're having this feast. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. This sounds very heavenly, right? That's what we get in, in the book of Revelation. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Um, uh, the, and this is Isaiah 25. The rebuke of his people will take away uh, from all of the earth. He will not be rebuking his people anymore. For the Lord has spoken and it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. What are we doing right now? We're waiting for him. This is our God. We have waited for him and he saved us. This is our Lord. We have waited for him and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So it's like we're going to be there. The marriage supper of the lamb. It's the end of the age. Death is no more. Tears have been wiped away. And now we're interacting with him. Now, that's the Old Testament cross-reference to the New Testament passage we're covering today. Now, we're going to meet the bride in Revelation 21. And here I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. This, this is a different kind of a passage. And, and in all of my studying this time on the marriage supper of the Lamb, I didn't see anybody bring this up, bring up this passage. But it's a really important passage, especially when we get into our text from tonight. This is Revelation 21, 9 through 14. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So now we have an, one of the angels that poured out the bowls coming and saying to John, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Sounds very much like Isaiah 25, doesn't it? To a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stones, like the jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates. Now, he's going to show him the bride and the wife of the lamb, and he shows them the city of Jerusalem coming down from, from heaven. And then he says that there's a wall around it, and there are gates um, there, are th uh, there are 12 gates with the 12 tribes of Israel on the gate, uh, the gates. So there's gates all around it. And on the gates are the tribe of Israel. Naphtali, Dan, Manasseh are all around the gate. It says, it goes on to say here, um, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. What do you think is on those foundations? On them were the names of the 12 apostles. So here we have the bride represented as a city and we have on the gates, the 12 tribes of Israel and we have on the foundations, the church. The church and Israel are the bride. It is not a distinct part of the people of God, the followers of God. It's all followers that have made a genuine commitment to him all the way back to Enoch and Noah and Abraham and all the way, however far in the future we're going to go. And there are genuine believers. They will be there as well. Now, here's where it gets interesting. This is a bit of a twist because in our text, heaven is going to rejoice over the fall of Babylon 
before it introduces the marriage supper of the Lamb. I was going to do a study only on the rejoicing over Babylon until I saw this connection. So you remember that the woman who rides the beast has, has made the world drunk on her fornications. She's a religious, a, a false religious, not just a false religious system. She is false religion. She's, she's all that is false, that all the lies that people have trusted in, that they haven't got a real relationship with Christ. And, and she has a cup of abominations and she rides on the beast. And here's what it says in Revelation 17, 18 about this woman that rides the beast. And the woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now we know that that is somehow Babylon that we've been talking about for the last three weeks that we don't yet have enough information because there's no city that is reigning over the kings of the world today. But we know that Babylon will do it. Whatever Babylon is, it will reign. And there's, there's really no, there's candidates, but we have to have one of those candidates kind of pop out to be able to figure out who this is. And as time goes on, that may happen. We may see a, a city where there's leadership in it that begins to rule over the entire world. We're talking about a one world currency now. We're talking about one world government now. All of these things are very much on the table and we will, it will clarify who this mystery Babylon is. But notice the woman is a city. And we just read where the bride is a religious system, the true religious system, the opposite of the woman on the beast with the cup of abominations is the bride with the cup of the Lord, communion, fellowshipping with him. So these two are put together to contrast. And that woman is a city that rules over the world and the church or the bride is a woman who rules from a city that is called the bride of Christ. Like the woman was Babylon, the woman is the city of Jerusalem. And what does Jerusalem do for the all of eternity now? Rule over everything. It rules over it all. So it's a city that rules over the earth. So there is a connection. <clears throat> There's a connection. And oftentimes, <clears throat> these connections in the Bible, it, the Bible certainly is in a general chronological order. The book of Revelation is in a general chronological order. But there are things that are out of order, sometimes slightly, sometimes majorly. Because in the Bible, things are sometimes put together because they bring an emphasis. So like the destruction of Mystery Babylon and the woman that rides the beast and the bride of Christ and the city that rule over the world, comparing and contrasting those together. Had they not been together, I might not have ever have made the connection. I'm sure other people have made it. I, I, I'm not the only one who's done it, but I'm reading it. I'm making the connection because they are together. So it doesn't mean that the marriage supper of the lamb has to be before the coming of Christ. In chapter 19, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then we have the return of Jesus. That's the next thing on our slate, that he is returning. It's in our creeds. I believe that he is gonna return to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. And we're gonna get there. So this is right before it, but it doesn't mean necessarily that it was chronologically before it. It could still be after it. Now, this is one of the arguments that people use for a against a post-trib rapture, that the rapture is going to happen after the tribulation period because the marriage supper of the Lamb happens. And so you've got to have, they believe the church is the bride. And so you've got to have the church up in heaven to be able to have this. But the feast actually takes place on a mountain. 
So in the book of Mark, for example, there are, Mark oftentimes takes three accounts and brings them together to make a point. And oftentimes it's the center account that the two on the outside are reflecting on. They're called a Markian sandwich. There's actually a name for them because it takes these accounts. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the chronology, the chronology is slightly different in each of them. So they're not as concerned with chronology as you and I are. When I read a biography, I want it in a chronological order. I'm getting, trying to get it straight in my mind. I read a book on the life of D.L. Moody a while back, that, and, the, and the structure of the book was the people in D.L. Moody's life. So it basically went through his life from beginning to end, but sometimes he had to jump back because now he had a person in his life that was the same time another person was in his life. And so I was going back and I had to go back and as I was listening to it on an audiobook, I had to go back and rewind it and listen again, go back a chapter again to try to figure out where is this at and where is this happening in his life because I want that chronology. They weren't as concerned about that. They're, they're more concerned and maybe rightfully so about what's being said and making sure that we understand the principles that are being said. And so I believe that this actually happens at the end of the age on the mountain of God when death is destroyed and that it's here to make that connection with mystery Babylon and the bride and Babylon and Jerusalem. God's making a connection with those. Now, why do people think that the bride, that the church is the bride? Let me cover a few of these verses and then I wanna show you why it was being taught. Now, remember, the, ch the church is the bride, but so is Israel. So is every believer that's ever committed their lives to Christ. So the church is being represented, is gonna be represented as the wife of God in one way or another. And we get that in the book of Ephesians. This is Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. It's after the passage that says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's after that passage. And then it says this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says, this is a great mystery. There's not that many mysteries in the Bible, but here we have it. And it has to do with the bride, mystery Babylon. This is a great mystery, but I, I'm not saying it's Babylon. I'm saying it's Jerusalem. It's just a connection. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he's talking about an analogy of Jesus loving the church like a husband is to love his wife and die for her, by the way. And by the way, fellas, I think a lot of things will be taken care of in your life if you loved her the way that Christ loved the church and you die for her. If you really do that, then I think a lot would be taken care of. To suddenly turn this into a marriage sermon. Um, now, another verse that people use is, is John the Baptist. Here's what he says in John 3, 28 and 29. This is a verse they're using to say that the church is the bride. You yourself bear me witness, he said, that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent from him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. And then they'll connect the bride here with the church. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Now here's the last verse that they'll use to say that the church is, and, and these don't specifically say it. None of them have specifically said that the church is the bride. The closest connection is the one out of Ephesians. But here's 1 Corinthians 11:2, and this is Paul. Paul says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband 
So the word betrothed could be translated as bride. You are a bride of one husband, or you are betrothed to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin. So Paul is saying, I want you to be chaste in your life because you are a bride. You're betrothed to God. Now, if all believers, if I'm correct, and all believers, including the church in, Jeru in Israel, represent the new, uh, represented by the new Jerusalem, and they are the bride, then why the confusion in Christian theology? Why in Christian theology does it say that the church is the bride? The reason for that is replacement theology. Replacement theology, a few hundred years ago, began when people started seeing Israel all over eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last day's things. And so you see Jeremiah 37 as an, 30, verse 7, as an example. It says, Alas, the day of the Lord is great. It is a day of Jacob's trouble. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. It is a day of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved out of it. God says, in the last days, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling around the whole world. It is the very center, probably of what causes World War III and what causes the final, puts things into play for the final the, uh, acts of the Bible to take place. But Israel, Jerusalem are all around it. Jesus said that the, the Gentiles would control, uh, trample Jerusalem until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So there would be a time when the Jews would be there again, and they're there. But this is 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Israel was not a nation. It wasn't even close. It was desolate. It was controlled by the Ottomans. They couldn't imagine that it would ever become a nation again. And so they made a theology, and it, a lot of it was racist in the beginning. And I want to be careful. I'm not saying that anybody who believes in replacement theology is racist. I'm just saying a lot of it was, was anti-Semitic in the beginning. Not all of it, not everyone, but a lot of it was. And what they said was that God has rejected Israel, which has some truth to it. Romans 11, 25 and 26. I, behold, I tell you a mystery. Here's another mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there is a blindness only in part because Jews get saved all the time and have throughout all history have come to Christ. So it's only in part. But there comes a day when they're all going to be saved, when God's going to restore all of them. And so you're, you're looking at the Bible, you're saying Israel's not a nation. So then they came up with replacement theology, which is that God's gonna keep his promises to Israel through the church. God's rejected them. They gave it up by rejecting the Messiah. God doesn't want Israel anymore. And so he's now going to keep his promises to Israel through the church. Now, that is, you're, you're maligning God with that doctrine. Because someone who tries to pay somebody else a promise they made to someone else is not a good person. Now, their argument is going to be, it's good because it's God and God can only be good. But God is also not going to do something that is wrong. And if you don't think it's wrong, try promising something to one of your children and then tell them, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you by giving it to your sister. See how that works out for you. Or go to a bank and get a loan from a bank and pay another bank back. What would that be? That would be criminal, right? You would be brought up on charges. You would be brought up on, on not taking care of the loan because you're paid it to another bank. You make a promise one place, you've got to keep it. 
And so if God made a promise to Israel and then said, I'm not going to keep my promise to you, I'm going to keep it in a weird way, by, in a roundabout way, try not to make it sound bad. That would be a form of straw manning, by the way. I'm going to keep it to the church. Then it would be unfair. But God said, I will never forget you, my people. I've carved you on the palms of my hand. And this is why you don't make theology based on what you see in the world today. Because Israel became a nation in 1948, born again in a day. And today there are six, probably seven, close to seven million Jews living in Israel today. And all of the things that God promised have come to pass. So it's why you don't go, I'm going to see Israel, but it talks about Israel. So let's figure out how to make that fit. That's a mistake. And so when replacement theology says, and, they, and a lot of people still believe it. Most Presbyterians believe in replacement theology. A, a lot of theologians believe it. A lot of scholars believe it. They just have, that's what the books have taught. And that's what they believe. And they haven't yet come around to saying, they just say, this is a coincidence. The Bible said Israel would be a nation in the last days. And it's a nation in the last days. It's just a coincidence. It's a coincidence that never happened before. The Bible talks about the resurrection of the Hebrew language. Now, we always have had Hebrew. Scholars always knew what Hebrew was and how to speak it. But it wasn't a spoken language. It wasn't a language for the people. And it was resurrected and became a language for the people, just as the Bible said it would. All of these things have come to pass. And so that's the confusion. If it can't be Israel because they were promised as his wife, but now the church is his wife. So they make it only the bride when there's nothing in the Bible that says it's only the bride. In fact, if you go to the cross references, you go to Isaiah 25, you find that it's all people. I'm going to make a feast for all people in the end of days on the mountain of God. Therefore, the bride is all believers who are represented in the city of New Jerusalem and the feast will be at the end of the age. That's what I believe. Now, Revelation 19, 1 through 10. All of that was an introduction, kind of. We'll, we'll, we'll make it pretty fast through these. After these things, now this is after the destruction of Babylon and men wailing over it. If you remember, we were introduced to Babylon in 17 and then, or at the beginning of 17, she was destroyed at the end of 17. Men respond to, by, by mourning and wailing the destruction of Babylon in 18. Heaven now is going to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. That's verse one. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven singing, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. Now, knowing the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, God talks about, Hosea's call as a prophet was to marry a woman that he knew was gonna go into prostitution. And then when she was old and lost her beauty, he was gonna remarry her and love her. And this is an example of what God is going to do to the church, the, excuse me, to Israel. Israel was, was faithful to him for a while, then they become unfaithful and that God will still love them in the end, even though they've been unfaithful. And so this great harlot is judged by her fornication and her fornication is idolatry, just as it is in the book of Hosea. The fornication in Hosea is idolatry. In fact, God says to them in the book of, of Hosea, when he's talking about their adultery, he says, I'm going to take the bales out of your mouth. 
The Baals were the, the false gods of the Canaanites. I'm gonna take them out of your mouth when he's talking about their fornication. So the whole world of fornication is idolatry. And he, sh and he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. So we know that whoever this Babylon is, they shed the blood of the saints. And then again, they said, Alleluia. Her, her smoke arises forever and ever. So that's a complete and a total permanent destruction. That's what the smoke rising forever and ever means. A complete total that this world's gonna be destroyed and there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. So the smokes of Babylon's not gonna rise forever and ever, but it speaks of the permanency of the smoke that arises forever and ever. And there may be a way in which the smoke will be around forever and ever, but it's talking about its permanency. It's permanent. So the smoke... Um, Let's see, the smoke will arise forever and ever. Um, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah, or hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I, ha I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thunders, saying, Hallelujah. What will the sound of every believer throughout all of time gathered together in one worship service sound like? Ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. What, how, how loud will you sing when you are in a group of people from everywhere who have ever believed and we are getting ready to partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is the sound like many in water saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The omnipotent is all powerful. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So now you've got the destruction of the woman and the city. And now you've got the exaltation of the woman and the city. That's why these are connected together. The marriage supper of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now we're gonna talk about that in a couple of minutes. She makes herself ready, which is an interesting way to phrase that. We've been saved by him. We've been forgiven by him, but we are to make ourselves ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Now that sounds like the imputed righteousness of Christ. But it's not. It says that this linen is clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So everything that we do for ourselves and every sin that we commit will be forgiven and forgotten. But our acts that we did for him will be the linen that we wear at that wedding. Again, we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back and look at it. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that, that may be an understatement in Scripture, unless it means by blessed something far more than we think of it. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You got an invitation? You're going to be here one day? And you're blessed. And you're going to be blessed. Blessed are those who go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So this angel says to John, these are the true sayings of God. And John does something that we wouldn't expect John to do. And I fell at his feet and worshiped him. 
So he fall, this angel is glorious. Remember, it's a mighty angel who's glorious, who had one of the bowls, and he falls down and worships this mighty angel. But he said to him, to me, this is one of the ways we know that these angels aren't Christ, because throughout the book of Revelation, people want to connect angels to Jesus. And we know it's not, because he says, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. So the angel says, don't bow down to me. I'm your brethren. We're brothers with angels. Why? Because we are part of their creation. They were created. The invisible. He, Jesus created the visible and the invisible, Colossians says. So they're our brethren. And they have the testimony of Jesus. They're worshiping and serving Jesus as well. And then he says to them, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So you put your heart and trust in God. You lift him up and you worship him. Now, let's take a look at these four things that we saw in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Number one, there was rejoicing and worship at its arrival. When the marriage supper of the Lamb started, all of a sudden he hears this voice like many waters and people are praising and worshiping God and they're rejoicing. One day, well, Paul said it, Paul said, the sufferings of this present age cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in you. One day we will be on the brink of eternity, a brink of living for him, with him for the remainder of our lives. There will be no light in this city because he will be the light and we will be rejoicing. I think, again, I think the word rejoicing, it just seems to not be enough and we will worship him. And what a worship service that will be as we begin to cry out for his glory and for all that he has done and that the Lord omnipotent reigns. Now, then it says the wife makes herself ready. And I've done a lot of weddings. I don't know how many weddings I've done over 38 years of being a pastor. I don't do many now, but there was a time I did them all at the church and I did a lot of weddings. And I'll tell you that the bride takes a long time to get herself looking good. Right, gals? That, if you ever want to look good, you're going to look good on that day. That's the day you want to look good. And so you take a long time to get yourself ready. In fact, for more than one wedding, we waited past the time that it was supposed to start because the bride wasn't ready yet. And you ain't going to have a wedding without a bride. You got to have the bride. And when the bride comes out and she's all, you know, she's got a dress that she picked out, looks fantastic. She's got all of our makeup on. I like to look at the groom because it's the first time that he's gotten a glimpse at his bride. And I like to look at the groom. Sometimes their eyes will tear up. There was one guy would lower a lip, quivered. <laughs> I thought, man, get a grip, dude. Get a grip. <laughs> but, but their responses are generally like literally having their breath taken away from them. As they see their wife around the corner and I say, let's all stand. The music starts as she comes walking down. So how do we make ourselves ready? How do we, as it were, put on the best makeup we could put on, get the best dress? By living for him today. Everything I'm doing today as his bride is, is getting myself ready for him. If I'm living worldly, if I have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in my life, then I'm not, I'm not getting myself ready. We wanna be ready for his return. We wanna be watching for him. We wanna be, we're waiting for him and we wanna be ready. And so if there's something the Lord convicts you about 
The word convict means convince. It doesn't mean condemn. He convicts us so we can get it out of our lives. If there's something that you are convicted by now, then, then make the change. Get yourself ready for him. Now she's granted to wear this white linen and the, the linen we were told is the works of the saints. So we make ourselves ready by walking faithfully with him, having things right between us and God, but then everything we do for him that is done in the right motives becomes the white linen that we are wearing it, it's, it's uh, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that whatever we're doing for him, if you think that there's no value in doing anything for him, we ought to do things for him just because it's him. But there will be a sense. And I think about the, the judgment where everything that we do with the wrong motive is burnt up out of Corinthians. And that which remains is gold and silver and jewels. But that's the works of the saints which will become part of the linen that the marriage, that the bride wears. And finally, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's how we're called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you believe in Him. In Romans chapter 9, God says, Esau I have hated, but Jacob I have loved. He's talking about nations, by the way. He's talking about Esau and the Edomites and Jacob and Israel. And the Edomites didn't believe in God and the Israelites did. When he gets to the end of that, and then part of that chapter, he says, God makes some vessels for honor and some for dishonor. Now, people want to add to that their own little statement. God, he, God makes vessels of honor and dishonor before the foundations of the world, unilaterally choosing who he wants. They want to add that in. It's not there. At the end of the chapter in verses, I think it's 29 and 30, 31, it says, Israel does not, he's talking about the whole, the, the nation of Israel now. Israel is not saved because they didn't choose to believe. So they, will, they, they become a vessel of dishonor because they didn't believe. But the Gentiles will believe, those who will believe in him. Why? Because they believe, they trusted in him. So it is by believing in him and saying, I trust in you. And that's another way of saying trust. Lord, I trust you. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to be a follower. I'm going to be a disciple. That's how you are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. Now, three things in closing. Number one, we are waiting for the bridegroom. Jesus said, watch and wait on several occasions. He said, pray that we be counted worthy to escape all of these things that are going to come to pass and to not let our hearts get weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life, that the day come upon us unexpectedly and we are not ready for it. I love in Isaiah 25, in that scene of the marriage supper of the lamb, that they say, we waited for him and he's here. It's like this excitement. We waited so long and he's here. It's as if they're saying. Number two, this looks like the great event that wraps up history. I believe it's coupled together with the destruction of Babylon for the comparison, but this will be when everyone is in heaven. You won't leave out during the tribulation period in the spot where it's put right before the return of Jesus, you've got the Jewish people who have been taken to the wilderness and protected by God from the dragon who wanted to kill them. And the dragon spewed out a flood from his mouth and the earth opened up and swallowed up the flood. And then the dragon went and and attacked those who were related to Israel, 
who keep the name of Christ. So that portion of Israel wouldn't be in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's used as a, a proof evidence that it's not Israel, that it's the church. But here's the thing. Again, if it's connected together because of how it is with Babylon, then this could still be at the end of the age. And it makes sense. Now, number three, if you don't have an invitation, let's get you one. Make that commitment now. Say to him, I want to follow you and I want to live for you. Be one who's waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb and all that it entails when we'll sit down together in that awesome feast. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had to be able to look at the marriage supper of the Lamb and to have an understanding of who it is that is your wife, that is betrothed to you. That is the city of Jerusalem, who is your wife with the gates of the nations of Israel, uh, of the tribes of Israel and the foundations of the apostles. And Lord, I pray that we would make ourselves ready, that we would be ready for your return, that we wouldn't be living like you're not returning, that we would be the ones who are blessed when the master comes to be looking for him when he comes. Lord, we want that. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.